Hi, I'm Steve Clements, and I have a question. Is former President Trump in commanding control of the future of the Republican Party? Let's get to the bottom line. Every year, Republicans have a huge get-together known as the Conservative Political Action Conference. CPAC, as it's known, sets the agenda for the most conservative wing of the Republican Party. Donald Trump attended in 2011, five years before running for president. Ronald Reagan spoke at CPAC before running, too. It's sort of the Republicans got talent show for the next generation of conservative politicians. This year was no different. You had the assorted conservative senators and members of Congress, former cabinet secretaries, and, of course, Donald Trump himself, who declared war on the Republicans who voted to impeach him last month and help the party retake the Senate and the White House. You can tell what the Republican talking points are by looking at CPAC's agenda. They're immigration, guns, cancel culture, and a fairly new addition this year, election integrity. The question is, do Republicans really want Donald Trump to still be involved in the party? And does his presence help the party win elections? Joining me to figure this out is Jason Miller, fresh off a plane after attending the CPAC conference in Orlando, Florida. Jason was part of Trump's election campaign in 2016, and he's been advising him ever since. Welcome to our socially distant studio, Jason. You're my first guest on, on stage in a year, so great to be with you. Um, let me just ask, I want to play a soundbite for you of Donald Trump talking about uh, perhaps the next election. Actually, as you know, they just lost the White House, but it's one of those things. But who knows? Who knows? I may even decide to beat them for a third time, okay? For a third time. So, to me, Jason, sometimes I misread things, but is that his declaration that he's going to run in 2024? Absolutely not. Now, obviously, I'm biased uh, working for the president and haven't been on both of his campaigns. I hope that he comes back in 2024 and runs again, but no formal decision yet. And I still think he's going through the process. I wouldn't expect to hear a decision on that anytime soon. But certainly, as we saw from CPAC this weekend, there's the strong base of the Republican Party that's with him, this conservative movement around the country. And this is really, for folks who are watching, this is the first time in well over a century that we've had an ex president who can then run again potentially in the future for president who still commands a national following. You know, it's fascinating to watch this because he did win 55 percent of the straw poll votes. And we'll say, wow, that's 55 percent. He was way ahead uh, of, the, of the next contender that was, you know, the governor of the state where you were in, Governor DeSantis in Florida. Uh, but at the same time, you're saying, wow, it's only 55 percent. Was the president uh, and your team shocked that it was a higher figure out of that straw poll? Now, and I'll give uh, folks a little bit of a background on this. So we did some national polling back in January and in battleground states in the United States. And one of the things we found is among Trump voters, 70 percent of Trump voters want President Trump to run again in 2024, about 66 percent of Republicans overall. But here's the key that a lot of folks might not realize is that when uh, polls that we saw going into election, our number was usually right about 70 percent of Trump voters were voting for him because they support him, uh, and 30 percent or so were voting for him because they opposed Joe Biden. It's about the inverse on the Democratic side, where usually between 30 and 40 percent of Biden supporters are really behind him, and the rest were just anti-Trump votes. So the number we saw this weekend really tracked with our national polling we had done. When you see other nationally known conservative leaders like former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo or uh, Senator Tom Cotton, others coming to speak before CPAC as well. Does the president look at them as friends 
or foes? I would say that they're still friends. And I think one of the striking things is you take a look at the poll in that head-to-head. -head now, current governor of Florida, Ron DeSantis, uh, who was someone that President Trump endorsed, received 20% in that poll. Also important to keep in mind, 37% of all the attendees of the conference were from the state of Florida. So it's a little bit weighted uh, in uh, in his favor, some of the hometown folks. But President Trump is still the, the flag bearer for the party both in the current and in the future. And I think this is important because, again, as we talk about this national base, the way he's put together this coalition, the way he's changed issues on trade, Middle East peace, which is very important, remaking the courts, securing our southern border uh, with Mexico on immigration. These issues, that have been, uh, especially on trade, that have really been kind of uh, pushed off for the last couple of decades are now the new benchmarks in the Republican Party. The party has changed. It's a new dynamic. You've just done something I was going to ask you to do, but I'd like you to you know, double down for a minute. A lot of people are worried about Donald Trump uh, as the guy, as the one. We used to sort of uh, flippantly look at, you know, Barack Obama when he was running as saying the one. But maybe, you know, to a lot of people, that, that sort of seems to be part of the shtick, if you will, of Donald Trump, that he's the one. It's about the man. Senator Cassidy, Senator Sass have said we shouldn't be worshiping a guy. We should be about issues. What are the issues that define Donald Trump's agenda uh, as he looks at the future of the Republican Party, what matters most as you look forward and, and sort of get away from the guy and get away from what he stands for? Well, great question. And I think we can start with foreign policy is one. And this in particular, as we look at the U.S. Uh, unnecessarily getting involved in foreign wars, particularly the U.S. presence in Iraq and Afghanistan. These were supposed to be temporary measures back in the Bush administration, 2000, between 2001, 2003, and obviously it's extended all the way until now, but also a lot of conflicts all around the world. What we found in 2015 and 2016 when President Trump first ran is that the Republican base around the country very much had a, uh, were pushing away from the interventionist model of previous presidents. And much of what- Both Republican and Democrat. But in that, yeah. And to that point, yeah. when President Trump ran in 2016, it was really an indictment on the failed foreign policy from both parties. And he would call it out. He would criticize Clinton. He would criticize Bush. He would criticize Obama and the very interventionist-minded uh, approach that they were taking. So foreign policy is a major one. And we, even we saw it with the five Middle East peace deals uh, that uh, Jared Kushner and President Trump helped to put together, uh, which is great. They used to the mock, Abraham Accords. Abraham right. Accords. Right. They used to mock President Trump and say, Middle East peace, what are you talking about? The fact we've actually moved toward that, I think. And, is and Joe Biden has said that this is a piece of Trump's foreign policy that will be continuous, that he's going to continue to, to support that policy. And that's very important. So in addition to the foreign policy mindset, I think immigration and looking out for America's workers, making sure that we're not essentially uh, flooding the U.S. workforce with illegal um, uh, aliens who are coming in that can take away American jobs. Uh, we need to make sure we have a strong, secure border. But trade, I think trade is really the big one. If you had asked me at the beginning of 2016 where trade ranked is an issue, wouldn't have even been in the top 20. But I think in the minds of a lot of voters, this is really an extension. We saw, obviously, the, uh, the great sucking sound that mm -hmm. Ross Perot talked about in 1992 uh, when NAFTA was being discussed, how jobs left for Canada and Mexico. With China's entry into the WTO and MFN status for China, we saw really the entire Midwest, the industrial base of the country, lose manufacturing jobs all over the place. The conservative grassroots and people around the country really wanted a more pro-U.S. trade policy. It was only the leaders in D.C. who were disconnected. 
So you mentioned a couple of things I just want to double down. I know that you're not responsible for Donald Trump's policy, but there are a couple of things that stand out on foreign policy. One seemed to be a proclivity to, you know, have a pretty good relationship with Vladimir Putin and, and other certain autocrats in the world where allies were sort of beaten up uh, a lot. And I understand that the impression that the president had sometimes is that we had cozy relationships where they were taking advantage of American largesse. Um, but I'm interested, as you look at foreign policy, I would largely agree with you um, on Americans being exhausted uh, for, from forever wars, like in Afghanistan, and ongoing commitments without understanding what the strategic reasons are. But, but what was it about affinity that many of us sort of thought we were seeing for Kim Jong-un uh, and Vladimir Putin, um, but kind of, you know, kicking Justin Trudeau around a lot? You know, that's a really good question, because I think some of this gets uh, confused in the media. You know, and I had this very specific conversation with the president when I first worked with him in 2016 and obviously heading into uh, 2020. His approach to Russia and Putin specifically is that they, they might not necessarily be our friend, but they don't have to be our enemy. And there's an important distinction with that. We're not saying that we're going to be allies, we're going to be cozy and buddy-buddy to Russia, but if this is a country, and just being very blunt, a country that has nuclear weapons, a country who we've had almost armed conflict with in the past, we don't need to go and stoke that fire and make it worse. If we can improve the situation, so as we talk Russia, as we talk North Korea, maybe we try a different approach, maybe we try to make them not our enemy. Now, there's some places where we've seen uh, with North Korea, they've uh, taken a, a, they at least haven't taken additional steps forward to poke the bear uh, and to uh, threaten to terrorize the region. Russia, I think we've seen that Russia is always going to be Russia. Uh, and effectively now, uh, keep in mind, Russia has the economy about the size of the state of New York, but they still have the big military. And so uh, that's always going to be a tricky relationship. Uh, but I give the president credit for at least trying to take down some of the tensions. But unfortunately, Russia is always going to do what Russia does. I'm trying to ask a question now about how gravity in one bubble, say the Republican bubble, the CPAC bubble, you were just down there, is so different than some other bubbles in the country, you know, in the sense that you have so many people that look at January 6th uh, as an incredibly dark moment in American history, uh, an assault on the legislative branch of government, potentially uh, ri uh, lives at risk. Um, and I know it's contentious out there to sort of say the president was, was responsible or others arguing that he was not responsible, that this happened despite um, his leadership. And I would love to kind of get an understanding of how uh, January 6th, what the president didn't talk about in his speech at CPAC, but how that is looked at. How should Americans on either side be brought back to some similar vision and understanding of that day, what it means for our country, and what, you know, I would say what Republicans are fighting for? Where does that fit in the, in the narrative? Well, I think we need to go and separate things out with regard to January 6th and, and make sure that we outright condemn any aspect of mob violence, any aspect <clears throat> of threats or intimidation to lawmakers. That's never acceptable, never in any circumstance, in any way, shape or form. Uh, I think we also need to make sure that uh, we're tightening up much in the same way after 9-11, how we got to the bottom of some of the intelligence failures, right. mm -hmm. the way information was not shared, the way we've seen from testimony on Capitol Hill that reports from the FBI did not 
not make their way to Capitol Police the way that we had National Guard that was offered that was not uh, ultimately accepted at the Capitol in advance. These are things we can't allow to happen uh, going forward. Now, with regard to January 6th, I think as we split out, there is the concern with many Americans around the country that there are aspects of fraud and irregularity with the vote, as well as there were unconstitutional changes violating Article 2 of the Constitution regarding voting laws. I think both of those need to be addressed, but the proper place for that will be in state legislatures around the country as we go and push to reforms. But again, to anything regarding January 6th and the, the violence or the activity, uh, that has to be condemned and can never allow to happen again. And I think the one other point I'd make, anyone who's watched President Trump over the last five years knows that he speaks out in favor of law and order and against mob violence all the time. In fact, we spent some 40 or $50 million on TV ads this past summer during the campaign uh, deploring the BLM violence and the protests that we saw. So if you're someone who committed violence on January 6th, you don't believe in what Donald Trump believes in. You're someone who has some mental issues, and I hope those people are prosecuted to the fullest extent. Let me ask you about the, the, the president also really went after those that, that um, supported his impeachment, um, called out 17 different uh, individuals that he, within the Republican Party. And so I've been saying, hey, you know, to a certain degree, you know, the action over this next year is going to be less between Donald Trump and Joe Biden and more between Donald Trump and this, you know, a wing that has diverged from him within the Republican Party. What is that going to look like? What's driving that? Is there any chance of a kumbaya uh, between these different wings down the road? I think it's a little bit less of uh, wings than you might imagine. As the president said in his speech, really have a group of Beltway insiders, and then you have the conservative grassroots around the country. In a lot of ways, this is like 2016. It's no different when President Trump really figured out where the grassroots were and where the, the activists around the country were and realized that those in D.C. were just out of step. So as we talk about the, uh, the Republicans, for example, who voted for impeachment, they're outliers in the Republican Party. In fact, recent polling I've seen shows that upwards of 80 to 90 percent of Republican voters will hold it against a member of Congress or a senator who votes for impeachment. It's very unpopular on the Republican side. So I think you're not going to so much as see these wings. I think you just have a, a small group in D.C. that they're essentially their powers being taken away. They're not viewed as the top dogs anymore. And Republicans around the country are going to be fired up on that. And look, part of the reason, love him or hate him, uh, that uh, the President Trump has uh, such a, a loyal base, he'll call it like he sees it. And he'll tell you exactly what he's thinking. And he did that with those legislators who, who voted for impeachment during his CPAC speech. Okay, I don't know how you see it, Jason, but some of us that look outside uh, see that the Republican Party has a race problem. That said, there are a lot of Latinos that are supporting President Trump, a lot of black Americans supporting President Trump, more and more, uh, interestingly, if you look at the numbers carefully. But at the same time, uh, you can see the, the Proud Boys, Oath Keepers, others swearing their own uh, allegiance to Donald uh, Trump's leadership in the party. How does that get reconciled? Is that uncomfortable uh, for the leadership in the party? Is that something they basically have to say, you know, these white supremacy par uh, parts of the party don't belong? Um, because it does look like you're getting a more multicultural set of Republicans in that party. A lot of people don't want to call it the way I do, but that's the way I see it. Yeah, and I think also on this one, one of two different things here. So I want to make sure that uh, any of these groups, whether it be the Proud Boys or the Oath Keepers or any of these, uh, these far-right groups, uh, that's never acceptable. Just in the same way that we called out uh, some of the, the radical left over the summer with uh, some of the more extreme uh, aspects of the BLM movement, 
that's anyone who's pushing violence. Never acceptable. Doesn't matter if it's on the right or the left. We want to make sure that we, we condemn that. And President Trump, quite frankly, even during the debate, uh, he said over and over, I condemn the Proud Boys. I can condemn any type of hate group. He said it after Charlottesville. Now, with regard to uh, minority participation in the Republican Party, President Trump actually, in 2020, set the modern Republican presidential record for highest percentage of the black vote, highest percentage of the Latino vote, highest percentage of the Asian American vote. And I think some of the issues might surprise you. One, obviously, the trade issue we talked about, making sure we're looking out for American workers. But I'll tell you, the stopping the endless wars, ending the endless wars, was actually the top mover with African-American voters because the African-American community so disproportionately sends their young men and women into the armed forces uh, that a lot of folks in the black community are frustrated and upset. Like, why do, why do our uh, boys and girls get sent off to war and a lot of, for example, other communities don't? So you'd be surprised on some of those issues that President Trump was talking about, how that ultimately helped bring folks into the fold. The key is we've got to make sure they stay involved in 2022, that with Trump not on the ballot, do they stay active with Republicans? That's going to be the trick. Yes, and I once interviewed uh, former Vice President Cheney uh, and Liz Cheney was on the, uh, the stand as well. And I asked him with regards to these wars that we had, did he have any regrets at all? Did he get anything wrong that he would like to have redone? And he thought, he took a long pause and he said, no. I guess you hang out with the President Trump more than anyone else I know. Does he ever sit back and say, wow, I got that wrong. That was a mistake. You know, that, that uh, uh, whether it was a framing around January 6th, whether it was around how he dealt with protesters out the White House, whether he, how he approached policy uh, possibilities of getting a bipartisan arrangement as opposed to um, one that was just loaded on one side of the political aisle. Does he ever sit down and say, wow, I wish I could have redone that? I, yeah, I've certainly sat down with him on a number of things. And he said, yeah, maybe we can try a different approach. But I think also uh, one of the things where I think he really prides himself is, okay, the professional politicians have done things a certain way for decades, particularly when we talk about the military or some of the foreign involvements. Professional politicians have gotten it wrong on trade for decade after decade. Let's go and try something different. Even the, uh, the Kim Jong-un uh, conversation when President Trump stepped into North Korea and everybody's head started exploding, like, oh, my God, the president of the United States is now in North Korea. He doesn't have any security with him. Uh, what, you know, he's in a foreign country. What's going on? He's willing to try new things and do things a little bit different. And I think, quite frankly, uh, look, sometimes it works. I think North Korea helped diffuse the situation somewhat. Uh, sometimes it doesn't work as well as we see with, as I referenced Russia earlier, they're still going to be up to their tricks and their uh, illegalities no matter what anybody tries. What does he see as Joe Biden's biggest weaknesses right now? I'd say, number one, that he's not really leading the country. He seems to be seems to be an extension of the basement back in Wilmington, Delaware, where we haven't seen President Biden out in some 40 days for a news conference. We have a crisis at our southern border. Uh, Joe seems to forget that there was already a vaccine distribution plan in place, which, by the way, we're back here first time in a year. We've been in the studio. Mm -hmm. I haven't gotten my vaccine yet, but hopefully I will at, at some point here. Um, and uh, but just uh, the fact that China is testing Biden as we speak with some of their actions in the South China Sea, what they're doing with the Uyghurs, what they're doing with Hong Kong. Uh, there really seem to be uh, testing uh, Biden's fortitude here. And it just seems like the, the more leftist elements within the White House and on Capitol Hill are running the show in D.C. right now. You know, there's a lot, Jason, just we spin up the show, that's come up a, a lot of discussion about cancel culture um, and, and accusations uh, by those at CPAC that the Democrats and 
uh, institutions, media institutions are very much engaged with canceling people, canceling statues, canceling history. Does not, though, I mean, I, I'm sort of interested in where this goes. From your perspective, is that a smart way to frame it? You know, these discussions about slavery, about race and dignity in a society that, you know, I've always learned, particularly, you know, studying other countries, that essentially history is a negotiation. It's an ongoing mm -hmm. review and, 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 and part of something that evolves. But is it smart to have such an edge to that discussion about race and dignity in society, economic um, inclusion? Where, where are you on that? Well, I think when we talk about cancel culture and for people watching, that's when uh, the, the belief that um, uh, if somebody does something that might be not politically correct or it might represent one group's values, but it might appear disrespectful to another's, that you immediately need to rush and condemn and say, okay, this person is now canceled. Uh, we, they don't want them to appear on TV or don't buy their products anymore. Let's push them out of society. Let's cancel their show. I think one of the, the, uh, the byproducts of this cancel culture effort is it's further pushed people to their ideological camps. So, for example, if you're right of center, uh, you watch uh, right of center cable TV, you read right of center websites, you follow right of center people on social media. Same thing on the left. If you're on the left, you watch your own TV, your own websites, your own social media, and everyone goes to their camp and it becomes us versus them. This is one of my, this might be my biggest concern with the Biden administration with this whole cancel culture movement. It's pushing people further away. So for example, this was a line in the president's speech that maybe I helped him with this one line, but where I said that Joe Biden is putting identity politics over American identity. Mm. There used to be the, even going back to, uh, I always felt in the way with uh, Reagan and Bush uh, and even into Clinton that uh, rah, rah, we're Americans. Uh, this is a, uh, we're, we're all, yes, people go and they throw punches politically, but then we, uh, we find certain things to go and agree on. Obviously in the aftermath of 9-11, we came together as a nation after that, uh, those horrific attacks. But I think right now everybody is being pushed into these various camps where everything becomes an echo chamber of listening to people like them and not interacting with each other. And the more that we push to either cancel groups or to go and say your thoughts are okay but the other guys or other gals thoughts are not okay, people aren't going to change their thoughts. They're just going to get more animated and fired up in their own camps and we're going to get worse off. Jason, the first time I met President Trump, it was clear to me that he watched me on MSNBC. This was in 2015, White House Correspondents' Dinner. He hadn't yet become President of the United States. And he heard me uh, telling an MSNBC host that I don't know anything about American sports. I only know about sumo uh, in Japan. And so at that night at the dinner, he grabbed me by my lapel and said, sumo, and, and then proceeded to walk me through the floor of the White House Correspondents' Dinner uh, introducing me to various um, athletic stars, the guy who caught the Super Bowl uh, football and, and, you know, other sports stars that were in the room. And I took selfies uh, with all of this. And it was sort of a, a, a moment where it was clear to me uh, to see Donald Trump work the room. I think he was the only one aware that those sports figures were on the floor of the White House Correspondents' uh, Dinner at that time. Uh, and, it, and, it, and it made me understand that at that time he was at least watching MSNBC then. Does he still keep a wide aperture or is he still pretty much just with Fox, Newsmax, others? Does he flip? Might he turn on to see this show? Uh, he will, you'd be surprised what he flips around and, and what he watches. And one of the things I learned uh, when I first went to work for him is uh, our conversations in 2016 were a little earlier than they are mm -hmm. now. We'd usually talk at about 6.30 every day. And it was clear that somehow at the same time he had watched Fox, MSNBC, and CNN 
the first half hours, all three at the same time seemingly, and then would quiz me on them at 6.30 to see if I was as up on the news as he was. He gets a pretty broad range uh, of news. Uh, I will say a little bit less of, uh, of the MSNBC, uh, just because, uh, quite frankly, the, the morning program has kind of gone off the deep end uh, with, with rational thought. Uh, but he'll flip on CNN uh, from time to time. I think it might be uh, I think it might be a little bit of uh, a little bit hate watching, but uh, there are uh, there are some some anchors and reporters who he has a, a great deal of respect for. Well, Jason Miller, uh, advisor to uh, President Donald Trump, uh, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. So, what's the bottom line? American liberals have been arguing that the events of January 6th relegate Donald Trump to the dustbin of history, but every time they think he's out of the picture, he rages back in. Sort of like Mark Twain famously said. Reports of my death have been greatly exaggerated. It's way too early to predict whether he will really run again for president in 2024. But his fans are out there, and he's going to raise a lot of money from those fans, and he'll be a nightmare, a real thorn in the side to a number of centrist Republicans who said no to him as he tries to run candidates against them. The Democrats have their own civil war going on between different wings of their party, but as long as Donald Trump keeps making headlines and delivering ratings with his attacks on other Republicans, no one's going to pay much attention to the Democrats' problems. So ironically, it looks like Donald Trump is sort of giving Joe Biden a big gift. And that's the bottom line.